Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Peg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Good afternoon and welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg. It's been five years since the unthinkable happened. An assailant entered Sandy Hook Elementary School and shot and killed 20 students and six teachers. Prior to December 14, 2012, it seemed unimaginable that young children would be the targets of such violence. Since Sandy Hook, we've witnessed dozens of acts of targeted violence at schools, campuses, stores, concerts, and nightclubs, which leaves many people wondering, is anywhere safe? And if not, how do we keep our children safe? My guest lost her daughter, Josephine, at Sandy Hook five years ago. Michelle Gay is now the founder of Safe and Sound Schools and will share her story of the devastating loss of her child and how she's turned that tragedy into a mission to help keep schools across America safer. We'll hear from Michelle Gay in just a moment. But first, this is a pre-recorded episode of Living Well with Dr. Pegg. But if you'd like to join the conversation, leave a comment on my Dr. Peg Facebook page. We're broadcasting from Denver, Colorado on KLZ 560 AM and streaming online from drpegradio.com. Our sponsor is SSI Guardian, who set the new standard in advanced safety education and training and offers comprehensive safety and security solutions to K-12 schools, higher ed, hospitals, hospitality and transportation industries. Go to SSIGuardian.com for information on advanced active shooter response training and safety and security products, services, and solutions. And if you're feeling stuck and ready for change, you only have a few more days to register for my Do Something Different for a Change personal transformation retreat in Denver on Saturday, December 30th, 2017. Space is limited, so go to drpegradio.com retreat to register today. Well, my guest is Michelle Gay, founder and executive director of Safe and Sound Schools. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Safe and Sound Schools was inspired by the children and educators who perished on December 14, 2012, at Sandy Hook Elementary School, and included in that number was your daughter, Josephine. And so our condolences and our prayers go to you and your family on, on this anniversary time. And you've agreed to- I thank you for that, because it really, it really truly makes a difference for us and for our family. Yes, well, we, we send our prayers. And you've agreed to share your story today and offer insights and recommendations based on lessons learned in the hopes that sharing your experiences will help keep others safe from the type of tragedy that you and your neighbors experienced in Newtown, Connecticut five years ago. And so we appreciate that out of all of that pain that you can bring um, a light and, um, and hope to others. And I'd like to ask you to tell your story uh, today and, and want to have as few interruptions as possible. I know it's not easy to tell the story and at the same time, we want to remember Josephine and, and her classmates and her teachers uh, whose lives were lost. 
Uh, can you describe uh, what life was like for you and your family before the unthinkable occurred and, and everything changed for your family? Yeah, you know, we'd been living in Sandy Hook, which is a, a little hamlet inside of the town of Newtown, um, for seven years up to that point. And um, our our youngest child, Josephine, we called her Joey, so you'll hear me refer to her as Joey from time to time. Um, she basically had lived her, her whole life there. She was only a few months old when we moved from Maryland to Connecticut for a job for my husband. And uh, I was lucky enough to be a stay-at-home mom at this time in my life. Um, I had previously been an elementary school teacher in the Maryland and Virginia public schools. Um, but this was a kind of a special time, an exhausting time, I'll be honest, um, with, with three young girls and, and a husband off at work in, in Connecticut and, and Manhattan during the time. But um, it was a wonderful place to raise uh, a family. It was a wonderful community, and, and it still is today. So great neighbors, great friends, um, sleepy little New England town where everybody knew everybody and test scores were high and crime was low. And, and on this particular morning, December 14, 2012, my husband had already started working a new job in Massachusetts, and we were set to move in about a month. Um, so I was, I was on my own with the girls during the week, and then he would come home on the weekends um, until, until the move. That was our plan. So this morning, I was just doing the, the mommy shuffle, you know, mm -hmm. packing the lunches and um, feeding everybody and, um, you know, breaking up their fights and putting out fires and, and all, all those things that parents know very well um, about that, that morning rush. Um, but I got them all off to school. My fifth grader at the time went to the intermediate school in town, and my fourth grader uh, went off on the Sandy Hook school bus, and Josephine, I actually drove in. Um, I wanted to give her a little bit of extra time. She uh, was just recovering from a concussion, and we had only returned her to school. So I drove her in a little late, dropped her off, and came back, sat down in front of the couch and decided I was going to eat before, you know, digging into the day. And um, and then the phone started ringing, and caller ID showed up on my TV screen, and it said town of Newtown. So that usually meant that, you know, I had forgotten something. It was school calling. And every time it said town of Newtown, it was school calling. Um, so I was expecting one of the sweet voices of, of my children's teachers that I knew so well, but it was our superintendent. And she said, all of our schools are in lockdown. There's been a shooting. Mm. And I just took a, a deep breath and I swallowed and I couldn't get around the fact that she had used the word shooting. It was just for obvious reasons, completely unbelievable to me, but I, but she did say it. I heard her clearly. Uh, and I knew that I needed information. Um, I couldn't get through to the schools. Obviously they were all in lockdown. Uh, so you're not supposed to answer the phone. Um, at that time, you're supposed to be focusing on your students and, um, keeping everybody safe and, and silent. And um, and so I just took off. I I got in my car, and I I thought that I would just drive around the town, and it would be very clear to me at least where this supposed shooting was happening because I would, you know, I'd see a big emergency response. So I headed out, and um, I passed the intermediate school, so I knew that my fifth grader was safe. Um, I passed the high school, so I knew it wasn't at the high school, and this you know, this was surprising to me because I figured if there was any place where something that could possibly be called a shooting would be taking place, it would likely be the high school. Um, and and I just 
remember kind of stopping and, and digesting the fact that it wasn't the high school. And then my car began to be overtaken by response vehicles, um, all, all of the different, you know, um, ambulances, fire trucks, uh, state troopers, local police. Um, it was it was tremendous. And um, at some point, I guess I just filed in behind the big line and they led me to this, the direction of, of Sandy Hook School. But we didn't actually make it up to the school. We only made it as far as the firehouse, which was situated right on the corner of the little drive that, you know, you would drive up to get to our, our school. Um, couldn't get up the drive because there were just so many vehicles everywhere. There were so many responders, and it was obviously a very active scene. So, um, and I, I felt like I was right there in the middle of it, which it was just, it was otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found a little patch of grass. I pulled my car over, and then I saw something amazing. I saw a line of kids evacuating. Mm-hmm. And this was a great thing for me to see for many reasons because, Seeing them evacuating so early, to me, that meant, as a teacher, um, that obviously the, the school building and the school campus had been deemed safe enough that they could begin evacuating kids out of there to our designated off-site evacuation location, which was the firehouse. Um, so this was a very positive sign, but even even more positive was the fact that I knew this line. This was my fourth-grade daughter's class. So at this point, I now know that two of my daughters are safe, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm on a mission now to, to find my third daughter's line. I ran up and, and made contact with my fourth-grade daughter, just told her to head to the firehouse like we'd practiced, um, and then I began my search for Joey's line and her class. And uh, to do that, I basically was just walking up and down the drive that would go from the, the firehouse to the, the school. Um, I had checked, I guess at one point I checked inside the firehouse and I, I saw that her line, her, her class was not there. Um, so I just began walking up and down that, that drive for a long time looking for her class. And Michelle, that had to have been just every parent's worst nightmare. On, on the one hand, you were relieved to know that at least two of your daughters so far you could determine were safe and looking for Joey. Um, it had to have been terrifying. It had to have been a chaotic scene, I imagine, running back and forth looking for your child. It really was. And, um, you know, people were coming just like me, parents, community members, hearing of this and, and kind of rushing either to get to their own kids or to go and help, you know, it's a wonderful community as I, I shared with you. So um, everybody was, was ready to pitch in. So it was getting really busy and chaotic and um, definitely not the kind of place that you would want to have your child. It was, um, you know, scary. Mm-hmm. So uh, I ultimately made the decision to send my fourth grade child home with her best friend's family um, so that I could focus on, on looking for Joey's line. Um, but they never, they never came out. Um, and, and despite my hours of, of walking back and forth, um, eventually I was shuffled into the banquet hall of the firehouse with, uh, with many other parents. And I remember thinking, you know, there's so many of us in here, um, that means that all of our kids have probably been taken somewhere. Um, I think your mind is desperate to try to, Mm -hmm. you know, piece together what you're looking at when it doesn't make sense. And 
you know, in my mind, I thought maybe these kids had been taking, taken to um, the auditorium or that, you know, some I had been told were taken to area hospitals, some were at the police station. So I was still very hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that, I guess that gift of, of denial um, was, was keeping me going that morning. But I did start to piece together what had happened. Uh, I learned that after I dropped Josephine off that morning, um, a man from our community had arrived shortly after and broken into our locked school and, and simply just fired his rifle at one of our entrance windows, gaining access within seconds. And, and he was able at that point to begin attacking our, our staff. You know, staff came running toward the sound of, of this danger um, immediately. And he killed uh, two of our administrators first, our, our principal and our, our school psychologist. And he wounded two other teachers um, uh, at about the same time, shooting down the hallway. Those two teachers survived their injuries, um, but he ultimately, you know, turned away from them and, and walked into our front office area. He wasn't able to find anybody in there um, because everybody was hiding. And um, according to the survivors from the office area, he just just kind of paced around, um, I suppose, not, you know, not finding what he expected to find. And then at that point, started heading down the front hallway of our school and made his way to two of our first grade classrooms and ultimately um, killed four more educators. There were two teachers in each of those classrooms scrambling to protect the children. In the first classroom that he attacked, he killed five of our six- and seven-year-olds and and the two teachers as well. But quite a few children survived that classroom. Uh, two ran and hid during the attack while he was distracted, and two other small groups of kids ran out, um, out of the classroom, out of the building, and in the direction of the firehouse, which they knew to be their, you know, their safe, their spot for safety. Um, and then our gunman left that classroom and, and headed to my daughter's classroom. And in that classroom, uh, all but one child um, were killed. One, one little girl survived, I believe, because of her location and because she was probably very shocked and, and frightened and, and silent. Um, and she was later rescued by one of our Newtown School Resource Officers arriving as one of the first responders that day. Mm. But at about this time, our, our gunman was likely seeing the, the police response flooding into the parking lot. And I believe that's the moment that he chose to end the massacre by killing himself. So I share this story um, as I travel around, and, and, and my co-founding partner, Alyssa Parker, who lost her daughter, Emily, with Josephine that day. We share this story because it, it, was, it was so unthinkable. To this day, it's still so unthinkable mm-hmm. to us that this, that this could have happened. Um, but we know how important it is to, as a community, stop from our, our busy lives and our busy jobs and our roles in the community and take the time to, to go to the unthinkable places um, in order to better prepare ourselves for safety. Um, we learned a tremendous amount from our students and our staff, the ones that we lost and, and the ones that survived that day, um, about you know, how the brain works, how, how we can behave, um, what types of things we need in a crisis before the cavalry arrives, um, and, and they did. They came in less than four minutes mm-hmm. um, from the first 911 call. But uh, those minutes before, 
you know, they gained entry into the building and, and were able to begin the rescue and evacuation were were an eternity, mm-hmm. you know, for, for all of those um, hunkered down in the building in, in fear for their lives. So, you know, we learn. We learn from um, our students and staff. And one of the things that was so striking, I think, to quite a few of us um, is that whatever you have in the moment of crisis when things are falling apart all around you, that's what you're going to default to, right. you know, what, whatever fire drill practice you've had or uh, whatever exposure you've had or experience you've had in an emergency, um, you know, whatever you've been trained to do, uh, that's all you have mm-hmm. because there's not really a lot of time or cognitive ability in terms of, you know, problem solving right. or coming up with a new solution or a better idea. Um, you really don't have the time, so you're likely to go with what you know, and that's what our, our surviving first graders did. Um, you know, they, they knew that their classroom was not a safe place. They, they followed their instincts to get out, to get away from danger, and they ran along the exact path that we had trained them right. to. And Michelle, was- uh, the, your points are so well taken that we kind of revert back to that training that we have. And your school was not unprepared. They had trained, they had drilled. I'm speaking with Michelle Gay. She's the founder and executive director of Safe and Sound Schools and lost her dear daughter, Josephine, at Sandy Hook five years ago. When we come back, we'll hear more of the lessons learned and good advice from Michelle Gay. Stay with us. Are you prepared for a sudden cardiac arrest? Having an AED is simply not enough. School athletic coaches are required to have CPR and AED training, but they can only save a life with properly functioning and maintained equipment. Maintain compliance and reduce your liability with AED program management from SSI Guardian. Buy an AED and receive a two-year management program for free. Call us today at 877-878-5800 or visit us at SSIGuardian.com. You can learn a lot about yourself and God from a dog. When her children asked for a dog, this mom got them gerbils. So imagine their surprise, and hers, when she adopted an abandoned dog that she met in Dallas, Texas, just one day after her divorce. In a way that only God could orchestrate, her spur-of-the-moment decision to take in a little dog she named Dallas was just the beginning of a seven-year journey that transformed her life and taught her to see herself and God in a whole new light. Read Doggy Tales, lessons on life, love, and loss I learned from my dog, a delightful and heartwarming book by psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Part memoir, part Christian inspiration, Doggy Tales is a must read for anyone who wants to learn to recognize God's voice, even in the most unlikely places. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll love Doggy Tales. Go to drpegradio.com books to purchase your copy today. Threats at our schools and workplace continue at an alarming rate and require an innovative approach to overall institutional safety. A 21st century safe school needs the right training, the right equipment, and the correct action plan to achieve a future-ready, safe learning environment. SSI Guardian's comprehensive, evidence-based solutions and Tier 1 Security Consulting is the only active shooter training in America with an accredited CEU. Don't trust your safety to just anyone. SSI Guardian is the only choice. Visit us at SSIGuardian.com. Welcome back, everyone. This is Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. My guest today is Michelle Gay. 
who founded Safe and Sound Schools after losing her daughter Josephine at Sandy Hook Elementary School five years ago. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story. My pleasure. Thank you. And how can listeners contact you? So they can reach out to us on the website, safeandsoundschools.org. There is an email, uh, an info email address there as well. Um, and, of course, on Facebook and Twitter and all those, those fun social media sites, we, we are there as well. Okay, thanks. And I'll also have a link to Michelle Gay on my website, drpegradio.com. So, Michelle, you know, as you paint the picture of Newtown and Sandy Hook, it does sound like this idyllic place, and that's why your your community loves or loved living there. And many people have this notion of something like that could never happen here, and yet it did and does. Uh, and and your school, it, in fact, was not unprepared, even though we may have that sense, false sense of security at times. Your school still went to great efforts to be prepared. There had been safety drills and emergency operations plans and procedures and and even locks on the front door it sounds like um, and your background is as a teacher yourself uh, so what was your take on how well your school was prepared for an emergency and did it seem like the school was um, operating in its um, its op operations plan the way you had drilled yeah you know we were better prepared than most at that point in our nation's history, especially for an elementary school. Mm. Um, our, our administrators, I really have to, to give credit to there, um, you know, our principal took safety very, very seriously. Um, she was ever-present, as were um, many of the other administrators in the building. You know, when you, when you arrived at, at you know, drop-off time and pick-up time, and, uh, you know, if you ever came to visit or volunteer, you would always see this uh, this presence from administrators, and uh, it was uh, it was truly safety first. Uh, when I present, a lot of times I share a slide. It's a, it's a picture that she snapped after we did our annual uh, lockdown and evacuation drill, um, with everybody lined up outside the firehouse and everybody smiling and happy. And you know, her message is safety first at, at Sandy Hook School. Um, it was. It was a culture of safety. Uh, we we all cared about it. Parents bought in. Um, you know, we did all the inconvenient things. Uh, we had to buzz in to get into the building and go sign in, check in at the front office, and and all of those those typical types of things. But in retrospect, we realized that those are the types of things that work for people like us who care about safety. Who love the children and teachers in the building and, and want to keep them safe. Um, we never really imagined that there would there could exist someone with with such evil intentions, such harmful intentions that um, you know they would they would even dare to, to shoot their way into our building, um, you know, making their way easily around our, our locked school building. Um, and we also didn't realize um, how how quickly a crisis, I believe, you know, unfolds. Um, our, our classroom teachers had practiced, had always planned in a lockdown that they would lock their classroom doors, but they were unable to do that because it, it just unfolded so quickly and they did not have their, their keys on their person. In fact, our, our substitute teacher um, in my daughter's classroom, she had not even been issued a key. Mm -hmm. So, you know, here they are now, 
lacking the the time and the actual tools that they need to, to simply put a barrier between the the attacker and the approaching danger. So, you know, simple, simple things um, we look back on and realize we really needed to look at them, you know, far more carefully. And, and I think with, with the fresh perspective of, you know, the local safety professionals that, that live in all of our communities, um, we educators often think uh, that, that we have, have thought through every contingency and, and we're great planners, um, but we don't necessarily think um, the same way as a lot of our mm-hmm. safety professionals in the community who I'm sure if, if they had been a little bit more involved and invited uh, in the planning process may have, you know, taken note of, of some of the simple things that um, we might have done differently to enhance safety even during unthinkable circumstances. And and that's, again, why you started Safe and Sound Schools and why you've been gracious enough to be on my program and to speak to the the media to give that message of uh, partnering with law enforcement. Um, Newtown uh, Sandy Hook School was safety first, and yet there were some pieces that professional law enforcement could have offered to enhance the plan that you had, the good plan that you did have. And so collaborating with our local law enforcement in the planning process is one of those recommendations uh, that that you're making. It absolutely is. I think we, you know, we were really impressed and blown away, frankly, by how many of these folks were, you know, living in our community already because they came and covered us like a blanket, you know, uh, that day and all of the days and weeks and months and now years after they've been with us. And I think it was just a lot of time that we spent with them initially that made, you know, a group of us start asking them tough questions. And uh, and they had answers, and uh, they had a lot of information and experience and expertise, and uh, and so that really became um, the basis of what we're doing at Safe and Sound Schools. You know, we were working with kind of side-by-side side being supported by fire professionals, um, emergency medical folks, uh, our law enforcement, obviously, um, mental health professionals, all of these folks were, were around us, you know, here in the aftermath. And I just remember thinking, wow, you know, if we had had them all involved before this happened, it might never have happened or it might have, you know, been greatly mitigated. So um, that, that was a, a hard lesson learned. But um, working together in a proactive way with all of these professionals locally and, and nationwide has has been a really gratifying mission for us at mm-hmm. Safe and Sound Schools. Excellent. And yet there were many heroes that day. There were courageous teachers and administrators um, and uh, even someone kind of running through the halls, locking those doors that the teachers were unable to lock themselves. And certainly there was a tragic uh, loss of life, and yet we know could have been worse had there not been the courageous, heroic actions of many involved. Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the other lessons learned for us is that we ordinary folk uh, are also first responders. You know, until the cavalry arrives, mm-hmm. you might be it. You know, maybe you've just come to school to, to read aloud to a group of first graders. Maybe you're a custodian. Maybe you're a kindergarten teacher. Um, you know, whoever you are uh, in the school or, or anywhere in the world when crisis begins to unfold, 
you might be the, the difference between life and death for someone. Uh, you know, our, our custodian just reacted on, on instinct amazingly. Um, he figured out what was going on, and he began hollering and, and running up and down the halls, locking the classroom doors with the key set that he had on his hips, yelling, lockdown, lockdown. You know, he knew uh, somehow in an, in an instant how difficult it was going to be for our teachers to secure their locations, mm. and he knew how important it would be for them to understand that, that this was happening and this was real because nobody could get to the PA system to make that announcement like we had always planned. Um, you know, everyone in the office was, was hiding for their lives uh, or had been incapacitated in the initial attack. So here you've got a, a very ordinary person who was, very heroic and saved countless lives that day, as well as those administrators and those teachers that came running up the hall toward the sound of this this terrifying danger. Um, and then throughout the building, we had teachers, um, you know, make taking extra steps to secure their classroom, pushing furniture up in front of doors. Um, we had you know, a secretary uh, reaching up to her phone to call 911, really risking her life uh, to try to to try to get to that phone and and communicate with with um, dispatch to let them know what was going on to call for help. Uh, and we had teachers elsewhere in the building doing the same thing, um, calling on their cell phones. Um, we had a library um, assistant who who called uh, from the library as well. And these are all really significant. Um, actions that that went um, toward the safety and informed the response of our our responders arriving. Right, absolutely. And you make an excellent point that you are the immediate responder. Each person listening to this interview right now, uh, whether you're a trained professional um, as a teacher at a school that's going through formal drills and you have an emergency operations plan, even when you leave that role and you're out with your family at the mall or at the movie theater or at a concert, we each are responsible for our own safety. And that's part of the mission of Safe and Sound Schools is to empower parents and educators and communities uh, to make these decisions that improve safety every day. Um, the emergency responders, you said they, they came in about four minutes, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and we know that many of these um, shooting attacks are over within minutes. And again, your point is even more relevant that um, it could be over before law enforcement even arrives. And so we have to um, be trained to know what to do and how to respond. And still, law enforcement arrived within four minutes. Uh, they, they were um, heroic as well. The emergency responders did something. Uh, we, saw, we saw the images coming out of Sandy Hook uh, as they led the children out of the school past the devastation that had occur occurred. Uh, they had the, the children um, look down and shield their eyes um, from those images, didn't they? They did, which I, I just, um, you know, that goes to how, how very human, uh, you know, I think sometimes we look at our heroes and, um, and, and, and don't, don't realize that they're also parents and, you know, siblings and aunts and uncles. And, um, you know, that was their idea to, as they were evacuating the children out of these horrific scenes, to protect them from, you know, further trauma. They wanted them to look down at their feet and hold on to the child in front of them so they could walk out safely in the right direction, um, but to avert their eyes uh, from from 
the horror, you know, that that they had to walk through to get to safety. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm speaking with Michelle Gay. She's the founder and executive director of Safe and Sound Schools, and she lost her daughter, Josephine, at Sandy Hook Elementary School five years ago today as this episode is airing. Um, Michelle, I'd like you to talk about some of the other challenges and successes and lessons learned in the aftermath of the tragedy uh, and this loss. And again, your goal is to um, better prepare, help folks better prepare to respond and recover from emergencies, crises, and disaster. Uh, What can you say about emergency notification and communication? Uh, You got that um, uh, telephone call. You saw it pop up on the caller ID on your television screen. Um, That was a notification you had gotten before, but not from the superintendent, not with that particular message. Talk about um, the role that that notification played and communication throughout the unfolding of this tragic event. Yeah, you know, I wasn't the only one who was receiving that message, and it wasn't just Sandy Hook parents that were receiving that message. All of the the Newtown parents, you know, with a child in in any one of our schools, our high school, middle school, intermediate school, and the three other elementaries, they were all receiving this call as well as, you know, the the Catholic school in in the town and the daycare centers and the private schools. Um, They're all receiving this information just like that. And so, of course, their instinct is, um, without knowing specifically which school is at the heart of this crisis, they want to know that their kids are safe. So they all hit the roads, you know. And and so you've got a lot of frantic community members and parents on the road um, making a beeline for their child's school and, uh, and arriving on scene very upset, very hysterical, and overwhelming the, the staff at each one of those uh, school sites, um, you know, creating other uh, kind of cascading events through, throughout the, the district. So that made it really difficult for, uh, for the resources of our school district to, you know, to be focused where they needed to be on, on the efforts and, and the unfolding incident at Sandy Hook School. But that communication piece, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. So I, I'm, I'm, I don't share any of this in any judgmental fashion. Um, everybody was doing the, the very best that they could in communicating with the channels that existed. Um, but we've learned in our travels around the country and working with other school communities um, how really strong communication, really timely communication, um, really clear and honest communication about what's going on, where it's happening, and what parents are supposed to do next is really critical to to managing, you know, a crisis incident. Um, obviously, there was, there was nothing that could be done to, to, to erase the crisis that, you know, the emergency, the tragedy that was taking place at Sandy Hook. But um, it, in order to, to kind of you know, kind of make sure that it doesn't spread to other areas um, to mitigate that a little bit. That communication piece is, is just so important. So, you know, we learned that in retrospect, the message that we received, the communication that we received um, would have been really helpful if, if we had been told where this was occurring mm-hmm. and status on all of the other schools. You know, the, the other schools are, are all safe and children are in lockdown. We are asking that parents remain in place until further notice and we will 
provide you updates on, you know, an interval of, say, 20 minutes or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, those types of things are incredibly helpful to panicky parents and community members who are trying to digest this this unthinkable information. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And again, your, your goal is not to uh, be critical of the response, because as we stated, there were so many heroes and courageous people. But it really yeah. is about all the lessons learned, the firsthand experience of uh, policies and procedures on the paper um, and how they play out in real life and the real life impact on families and parents in that moment. So excellent, um, excellent feedback in terms of being more specific. Um, we see on the news all the time when there's notification of some kind of targeted act of violence, how people swarm to the location wondering if their family member is there or they know that their family member is involved. And so being able to get more specific information, as you stated, updates, um, status reports is so helpful. Um, not to mention the, being able to manage the media. We're going to go to a break, so I don't want to <laughs> uh, talk about that yet. But managing the media can also take up a lot of time and resources as the tragedy is unfolding. And I imagine over the, the, the course of the subsequent days, days and weeks and even months. My guest today is Michelle Gay, and she's the founder and executive director of Safe and Sound Schools. And we're talking about the, um, the tragic loss of her daughter and 19 other um, students and teachers on that day, on this day, five years ago at Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut. We'll continue our conversation when we return. Stay with us. We'll be back. Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional well-being of every student, teacher, and school employee. From early childhood solutions to advanced training for teachers and administrators, the 21st Century Safe School is the most complete and comprehensive approach available to schools and universities. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the safest environment. Take action today by calling us at 877-878-5800 and learn more about this innovative approach at SSIGuardian.com. What if a psychologist with years of clinical and teaching experience wrote a book revealing secrets that therapists know but usually don't share? And what if that book provided strategies for experiencing change and transformation? That's exactly what you get with Dr. Pegg's book, Do Something Different for a Change, an insider's guide to what your therapist knows but may not tell you. Approaching 10 years in print, this self-help classic shares insights and strategies to help you overcome the three common barriers to change, heal your emotional pain and emptiness, and strengthen your connection to your true self and and others. In the easy-to-understand, down-to-earth style she's known for, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark clearly communicates fundamental principles related to change and reveals secrets your therapist knows but may not tell you. Read Do Something Different for a Change tonight and have a better tomorrow. Go to drpegradio.com books to purchase your copy today. Hey. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. This is Living Well with Dr. Peg. My guest today is Michelle Gay, founder of Safe and Sound Schools, 
And you can go to my website, drpegradio.com, to connect with Michelle. Or if you want to share this interview with a friend or family member, you can also learn more about my December 30th Do Something Different for Change personal transformation retreat by going to drpegradio.com. So, Michelle Gay, thank you so much for sharing. I know this has got to be tough, and it's the anniversary of the loss of your daughter and, and so many others, uh, probably friends and, and neighbors uh, that you knew who also experienced this tragic loss. Yes, thank you for having me. It's, it, it, you're right, it's difficult. Um, that, that never gets easier. Um, but it is, I think, in, in, in many ways, it's, it's the work and, um, and helping others to benefit from, you know, what we learned that, that drives us forward. Yes, and we so appreciate uh, what the messages that you're sharing. And I've learned a lot even today in our interview and trust that our listeners have as well. Uh, we were talking about notification and um, how there could be some specific information provided in those notifications that really help the family members, not only logistically, but just emotionally. And we were talking about how uh, the media, we want to know what's going on, uh, but the media descends upon a scene like this, and um, they're keeping the public informed, but that takes up a lot of energy and resources um, for the school personnel, in this case at Sandy Hook, um, what was your experience um, and other Sandy Hook families with the media at the time of the, the, the tragedy and crisis and in the coming days and weeks? You know, I, re I remember the media being there when I first arrived. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the first parents arriving because I just, for whatever reason, I just grabbed my keys and, and took off. So I remember them being there right away on scene. Um, and, you know, they're they're doing a job. They're they're um, they're out there to to report and provide information to the community. Um, we know now, though, how very important it is to consider that as part of the school's crisis plans mm -hmm. um, to make sure that the area is is secure, um, but but also that there is a perimeter established to um, to keep arriving parents out of the out of harm's way and out of you know the middle of all of the, the important processes that, that have to take place to, to get everybody to safety um, but also to to kind of keep you know keep the media um, at bay at least you know not just for their safety but also just because we want to make sure that they have accurate information to report and um, you know it took a long time for um, first responders to to secure the the school site and and then to begin um, pushing parents back and pushing media back and community members that were arriving and uh, and because of that, you know people started shifting to the firehouse location where the evacu evacuation was taking place. And so that began to be a really, you know, chaotic scene and, and, and a very not secure scene. Um, but eventually law enforcement, um, you know, was able to, to push the media, corral the media to a designated area, corral parents arriving to a designated area. Um, but it was a real challenge for them. Even with, we had 26 law enforcement agencies mm -hmm. uh, that arrived. So we had a lot of law enforcement agents. We also had all of our firefighters there, uh, emergency um, medical folks that were arriving. So we had a lot of personnel, uh, but there was not a plan um, ahead of time for coordinating together and working with the school folks. And then on top of it, our school folks weren't there to, you know, our leaders yeah. were gone. Yeah. 
And so they weren't there to, to provide the direction and the information and, and communicate about what a school-based reunification was even supposed to look like. So lots of stuff. Everybody was just doing the, the best that they could to make it up um, in the moment. But we were very challenged by the presence of media um, right there initially, um, snapping pictures and um, putting microphones in, in, in front of evacuees' faces and, um, you know, capturing really difficult moments mm-hmm. in our lives, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was that was my experience. Um, but once law enforcement was able to get everybody where they needed to be, you know, kind of a designated media area, a designated parent area, um, keeping other well-intended community members who didn't really need to be there mm-hmm. out of the area um, and establishing some some control over the the scene, um, we were starting to gain some more some more control. And and with those boundaries, um, you know, everyone everyone does much better. Um, <laughs> we started to have more order and control in terms of interactions with the media. And um, by and large, I would have to say that our local media was very responsible. Um, you know, they're invested in the community. They want to be very accurate about their reporting. Um, and, and they're, you know, they're our, our neighbors. So um, they were very caring, I think, in, in many ways. Um, I think where we saw some of the reporting go awry was unfortunately a little bit more with national outlets. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that was because they were also desperate to get some information and they were being kind of frozen out by, um, by law enforcement, by our community leaders. Um, and we learned that it's important to, to feed them a set, a steady stream of accurate information because without it, they're going to start hunting, yeah. you know, uh, they'll, they'll get onto Facebook, they'll get onto, you know, the social media outlets, um, you know, they'll grab someone walking on the street. And, and, and when that happens, a lot of misinformation gets circulated. Um, there's a, a widely known um, a kind of piece of misinformation, if you will, about uh, that was reported initially by a, a large national news outlet that that our shooter's mother was a, a kindergarten teacher at the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that oh, persists, no one knows where that came from. That persists uh, to how this that day. journalist got that information, but it was completely erroneous. Mm-hmm. She was never a teacher at our school. And, uh, you know, and that, that little piece of misinformation got spun into, you know, a, a, a different kind of a fabricated story. So all of those things um, are, were painful lessons learned, but in retrospect, those are simple uh, practices and procedures that, that we can put in place to ensure that information doesn't spiral into misinformation and, and hurt people. Absolutely, and, and that, that um, misinformation about the assailant's mother, I think, persists still to this day, that um, uh, people think there was mm-hmm. that connection. Uh, there have been some even cruel... Um, um, you know, uh, attacks of the families and uh, of, of um, victims who were killed that day. And so we really want to be responsible with the reporting and um, interpretation of the information. But uh, the message that you're giving is that it helps when there is a plan in place of how to release the information, what information needs to be included, and how frequently are there going to be status updates, um, some boundaries for the media and for the family. So I think all of that feedback that you're offering is um, much needed. 
Uh, so the reunification uh, can just become chaotic. Um, how long did it take before families were uh, reunified with their loved ones or given the tragic, sad news that their child wasn't coming home? So it was unfortunately different for every family. Um, you know, the, the evacuation took a long time. Uh, the, the first responders were, were very open and honest with, I, I remember me, you know, I was coming up to them, what's going on, what are we doing? And one thing that was really helpful that I was told from them is we are going classroom by classroom, closet by closet, mm -hmm. you know, nook and cranny by nook and cranny to evacuate safely each group. And some of the groups are really small. Some of the groups are full-size classes. So this is going to take a long time. But just having that expectation set was tremendously helpful to me in maintaining control. I, I just I needed to know what was going on and, and what, what to expect and, and what was happening. Um, so I think that was really helpful. But I think, you know, so depending on where your child was or your, or your loved one who was an educator in the building, where, wherever they were, it, it might have taken, you know, a, a much longer time for them to emerge from the building and get to the firehouse. Uh, I, know, I know some of the staff members didn't come out for hours. Uh, some weren't discovered for quite some time. So, um, you know, I, I would say that about by 12, they had gotten everybody out of the building um, to safety, to, to the firehouse, or, or even to the hospital if, if necessary. But, um, you know, some came out right away. Like my, my fourth grade daughter's class was one of the first classes emerging from the building. And so, you know, had she been my only child in the building, I could have whisked her away and we could have left. So it really kind of depended on, on the family. Um, as well as, of course, if if your child uh, had was a victim, you know, if if your child was like mine, um, not coming out of the building, eventually, um, I remember running up to a, a female first responder, a law enforcement agent, and and I kept saying, you know, when are they coming out? And she's like, they're they're all out, you know. And I said, well, I still haven't. My daughter's class hasn't come out yet. I haven't seen them, and she's. I, I remember now, in retrospect, the light bulb was going off for her, and she was realizing that nobody had a designated place for the victims' families. So she real quick started scrambling, and, and they put us in the, the banquet hall of the firehouse to wait. Um, so for our families, um, we did not know until about 2 o'clock officially uh, that there had been 20 children killed and six educators killed. Um, we were waiting for a very long time, um, some of us with, with more information than others. I, for one, was, was hoping to the very last minute that I would find out that my daughter was, you know, in the hospital or had been taken to a different location or, or something like that. So it was a very, very long, very painful process. Um, and as well, I think, you know, authorities weren't sure how to tell us. Mm -hmm. They, they had made the decision that they didn't want to, um, they didn't want to tell one family and not another family, so they wanted to wait until they knew uh, for sure the identity of each of the victims. And that, of course, meant that it was going to take a really long time. Mm -hmm. And they made the determination that they would notify us all at one time. And uh, in retrospect, you know, uh, and knowing what I know now, working with experts in the field of school safety, what would have served us better would have been to 
for each individual family to have been notified separately and to have been notified with a law enforcement liaison present as well as a mental health liaison present, mm-hmm. just a kind of a, a much more small, controlled um, setting for, for receiving that really difficult news because hearing it all together was an, another uh, another deep layer of, of trauma for a lot of us, unfortunately. Absolutely. And so you bring up um, the topic of uh, having recovery teams there and mental health resources available, not only immediately as they are providing notification that you have lost a loved one, uh, but also to provide that support in the immediate aftermath of such a crisis and tragedy. Uh, and then in the coming weeks and months, um, uh, there, there are different phases of recovery, aren't there? There absolutely are. There absolutely are. And I think, you know, we were underprepared for the immediate mental health needs, for sure. Um, but then in terms of the, the needs town-wide, um, mm-hmm. they were extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, even if you weren't a family like mine that had been so very directly affected by the, the tragedy, you know, you knew somebody or mm-hmm. a neighbor or a parishioner or, you know, somebody from the soccer team. It was it was just rippling mm-hmm. through our community and, and people needed help and guidance. And, and there were just so many of us and, and not enough providers. And what can you recommend, um, again, as lessons learned um, in the midst of a cri- crisis and a, a trauma traumatic situation is not the time to be thumbing through a Rolodex. Who are our mental health providers? Who are, who's the crisis team in town? What recommendations can you give in terms of getting those teams in place in advance of a tragedy? So critically important. Um, you know, I think y- you think mistakenly that y- there's plenty of people that you can call in an emergency, and it won't be that hard for you to pull up your you know, your, your contact list or um, sift through your business cards, but it is um, trying to reach people in, in, in the middle of, you know, a ground zero type event. It was just, it was a nightmare, you know, not knowing who, whose practice had moved to another location or, you know, it was so complicated. So I think we talk a lot in, in School Day 2 World about making sure that there's redundancy in, in all of our, our plans, procedures, and practices. It, the same goes for the mental health component of crisis preparedness. You know, we have to have layers deep of, of different folks that we can reach out to. So, of course, you know, it, it, in a, a smaller scale crisis, um, you know, the building level mental health professionals will be able to serve. Mm -hmm. But if they're not, what's the next layer? Is it the district level? Will there be teams that arrive from other schools in the district? And then if if that layer has crumbled, as it did for us, because all of those people were occupied with the crisis site at their own school Mm -hmm. and their personal involvement with many of the staff members and students, you know, of, of Sandy Hook in our small community. So if the district level team has been incapacitated or overwhelmed, then what's the next layer? Is, is there a community-based team? Is, is there a statewide team? Are there teams from other school districts and towns nearby that you have trusted relationships with? Mm-hmm. Just thinking of it in terms of concentric circles, just like we do in emergency preparedness, we need to have the same level of redundancy for our mental health mm-hmm. support. And, and having relationships established, yes. as you stated, with law enforcement, emergency 
responders to help you develop your plan and see what holes there are in your uh, procedures and operations. Same with the mental health and, and recovery. Um, Lee, um, uh, Michelle, we have just a, a minute or so left. I want to talk about um, what you hope listeners will take away uh, from sharing the tragedy and, and how to really reclaim our, our community and our school after such a tragic uh, occurrence. You know, the goal of our, our organization and, and um, I think the inspiration that we take from our children is it's empowerment. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when you, when you sit and you walk through this, this journey with me um, and, and you hear my perspective on, on that day, um, it's easy to feel helpless and hopeless. But, in fact, there's a tremendous amount of, of of power that exists in each of our, our communities and each of us individually. And so that's really what our organization, Safe and Found, is about. Um, this can't be done by one person or one leader, you know, one principal or, or a police chief. Um, when it comes to safety and the safety of our communities, the well-being of our communities, it's really an all-hands-on-deck operation. Mm -hmm. we, we need everybody, everybody. involved. Yes. Um, and, and certainly to varying degrees of involvement, right? We've got our professionals that do this for a living, and then there's the rest of us who are running around with our day jobs and our yes. kids and it's, soccer practice. It, it takes, but um, it takes I think everyone. the collaboration piece, mm -hmm. bringing people together to discover the power that we have together in our community. Great. Thank you so much, Michelle Gay of Safe and Sound Schools. Thanks for being my guest today. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Reminding you to live well. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Living Well with Dr. Peg. For more information or to contact Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark about her mental health or consulting services, please visit her webpage at drpegradio.com.